So tonight I'm going to talk about equanimity. And I really like to talk about equanimity because it's been a very um, important practice for me, a very beloved practice for me. And I practiced it primarily as a Brahma-vihara. It is one of the four Brahma-viharas, Upeka. And yet the practice is more than an opening of the heart or awakening of the heart is the, as the metta is or compassion. It's also very deep wisdom practice. And equanimity really is an expression of our true nature. When we experience equanimity, we are touching into our essential nature that we are. It, and it arises from our true nature. So equanimity is a, it's a state of mind, we might say, or an experience that is very relevant for us as we move in our world, live in our world in a wise and conscious way. So I want to explore what it is so that it's not sort of an abstract idea, because sometimes these words, you know, that we use a lot in our practice and in the teachings can, you know, be sometimes somewhat abstract for us. But I'm hoping that through the exploration tonight that you really have a sense of how equanimity manifests for you because every person here is touching a level of equanimity. It's really the essence of what we're practicing in some ways, we might say. Because equanimity is, one of the definitions is that it's an unconditional acceptance of the way things are. So that each time you let go of your wanting and not wanting, your reactivity to what is happening. In that moment of letting go, you're dropping into more equanimity, into acceptance. And that acceptance is a kind of allowing, allowing what is to be just as it is. Equanimity is that non-reactive mind And when we're not in that reactivity of grasping and aversion, wanting and not wanting, we come closer to the stillness, the unmovingness in the mind. And all a moving mind is, when we say the mind is moving, all it is is the mind that moves towards wanting and not wanting just the grasping and aversion to what is. And so as that starts to soften, that movement of mind starts to soften and starts to be less activated, the mind on one level becomes more still. And as we continue that practice 
over time, as we continue, we start to feel more and more of the stillness of the unmoving mind, which is one of the manifestations of our nature, of Buddha nature, is that deep stillness that we are. So this practice of, of not reacting, not getting caught in our reactions is, 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 is critical. It's, it's really, in some ways, uh, as I said, it, it, it is what we are doing so that we can touch more and more into who we truly are. Equanimity is an unshakable balance of mind, the true equanimity, the equanimity is an unshakable balance in the mind. And that balance is supported by insight, insight into the way things are, which I'll say more about, and we've been talking about the way things are, that ultimately, truly, there is nothing to hold on to. There is nothing that we can possess and call our own. The first time that I heard about equanimity many, many years ago when I first started my practice, I heard this story that I want to share with you um, that is a beloved story for many of us of the warlord and the Zen master, which really um, points to the power of the equanimous mind. And the story goes like this. There was a fierce warlord with a band of men who was pillaging and rampaging the countryside. People would hear of this and flee in terror. He arrived at one village where there was a monastery and discovered that all the people had fled and all the monks had fled, except one, the Zen master. Upon hearing this, the warlord was incensed that there was someone who wasn't afraid of him. So he storms off to the monastery in fury and finds the Zen master sitting in the zendo. He strides up, unsheathes his sword and says, don't you know that I am one that can run you through with this sword without blinking an eye? And the Zen master looks at him in the eye and says, don't you know that I am one who can be run through with that sword without blinking an eye? And the warlord was so moved by this Zen master's equanimity that he laid his sword at his feet and bowed. So, you know, you hear, we hear a story like this, and yes, surely it points to the power of that unmoving mind, even in the face of death. And, and suffering, that, that unmovability. And of course, when I first heard this story, you know, when I was in my early years of practice, I thought, oh, well, I'm never going to get there. You know, if that's where this practice is leading, you know, it seems like a long way off. And I saw how it's set up you know, a certain ideal in my mind. And then, you know, through that ideal, ideal image, you know, I felt so small 
and so inadequate and uh, incapable of doing this practice. So I think those stories are useful, and I think they're very good teaching stories, because it does point to really what is possible and what is, uh, uh, what is the, the, capa the capacity of our own Buddha nature truly has that kind of strength and power we do within us. But I think that it's important to also look at the kind of equanimity, seeing that there's many levels of equanimity, so that we don't kind of set up another idea of, well, equanimity is like this, and you know, I'm not like that, so you know, I must not be equanimous. Because I think that, that, you know, the very idea, the very image that we create in our mind then begins to undermine the strength within us that is here right now. It becomes one of those uh, uh, patterns of thinking, belief systems that just starts to erode the very nature that we are. We start to get identified and believe again in this small identity of who we really are. When we operate out of any kind of image of what I should be like, you know, I should be like this, or, or the practice is pointed to this and I'm not like that, you know, it puts, a, it's a, it puts an inner pressure on us. Any kind of an image that we hold on to and identify with, which then is in conflict with the way we actually are and can interfere with really having access, a c real a connection with what's happening right now and the way we are right now and where we are right now. And it's only until we are actually able to fully settle into the actuality of the here and now experience, then we begin to touch into this inner stillness, this non-reactive mind. It's a, it's a, 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 a little bit of a catch-22 in a way. We just keep need, we need to keep settling back and settling back out of the, the grasping on to these images and these ideas. Even though that they're, even though they're useful in terms of like this story of the warlord, again, it's like let go. Let go. Where are you now? And what, what can happen in your experience right now where this non-reactive mind is present? Where you're not leaning forward and you're not leaning away, but more and more settling right into this experience now. Sometimes these ideas, and not just this idea that was uh, demonstrated in this story of the warlord, but you know, any ideas we have about equanimity, which is really held up a lot in Buddhist practice. You know, I mean, we have these Buddha statues, you know, like we're supposed to sit like that, you know, all the time, you know, um, except the four or five hours that we're sleeping. 
And then we're not really supposed to lie down if we're really good <laughs> Buddhists, you know, just sit like that 24 hours a day. You know, I mean, these ideas do get um, propagated. And what can happen, another thing that can happen, is that these ideas can begin to lead to a kind of suppression of our emotions. So that in a way we're not even supposed to have uh, uh, emotions moving through us or strong feelings. Or maybe we're not even supposed to have these feelings of aversion and, and desire and lust and, and uh, sadness and all this, this movement that we can begin to say, well, that's just more reactivity. So if I'm really understanding the practice, I really just need to clamp down and just kind of bear down and just not have these feelings. You know? And I think a lot of us practice that way for a long time, you know, just kind of, okay, sadness, just stop it. <laughs> you, know, or, you know, or anger, nope, no anger, you know, just that bearing down and a way of really cutting off from the feeling life which is really pushes us further into another self-image, right? I mean, it's just, a, well, it's just another image of how we're supposed to be, so it's more reinforcement of that um, uh, a small ego identity. We're still, there's still not, not freedom in that. We even coined a phrase for this over the last some years, which is called spiritual bypassing. You know, bypassing the emotional life so that we, you know, appear, we, we, we manifest, we look a particular way. You know, and then maybe even somebody will say, well, they're really good Buddhists, you know, or they're good practitioners, they don't get angry, or whatever that is. So this is what leads to that idea that somehow in the Buddhist practice, you know, we're, we're supposed to be detached you know, kind of detached from the world and detached from experience, detached from people and, you know, not really uh, feel so much. You know? And it is a question that comes up a lot for people in practice, you know, this question about, you know, where does the quality, how does this qual quality of detachment play in our practice? Because the op opposite of that seems that we, you know, might be really engaged and involved and have a lot of feelings and reactions and kind of overwhelmed and get caught and get, you know, uh, uh, stuck in all of that. And I think it's really just two extremes. One extreme is that the overreaction and the over kind of um, identification with the way things are. And the other extreme is the falling too far back into a kind of withdrawal or a cutting off, a detachment. In fact, in the Brahma Viharas, each, each of the um, uh, Brahma Viharas has something that's called a near enemy. A near enemy means something that looks like the uh, expression of the heart, but it isn't really. And the near enemy for equanimity is indifference. So that we can actually have a, 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 a we could appear like we're quite equanimous, but actually we're cut off. And that cutting off has, it leads to a kind of indifference, which isn't equanimity at all. It's indifference. And sometimes people who are in, indifferent can be and kind of caught in this indifference are, are identified with the self-image of appearing kind of unreactive, unbothered, you know, detached, 
And again, it's another image. It certainly is a kind of denial of life, you know, where, where there is a disconnection with oneself and with others. And, and, and it's, it's often uh, possible to feel this, particularly in another person. We can sense it when, the, when a person is, is, is pulled back and disconnected disengaged in this way. It's not a, it's not, does, we don't feel uh, uh, kind of that drawn in or kind of the, the warmth and connection that we feel when there's that openness and that ease and of heart, mm-hmm. which the, the true equanimity expresses itself through. So true equanimity is not withdrawal or indifference, but a wholehearted engagement with ourselves, and a wholehearted engagement with the world of form. Sights, sounds, tastes, smells, touch, feelings, body, others, the environment, everything that's happening, a full engagement with that. Not cut off. Not cut off from the movement of life, connected and awake. But at the same time, not, not caught in, with the grasping after, or the aversion to. A way of being open, yet settled. Open and receptive, yet still or settled, kind of an ease of strength in oneself and relationship to what's happening. I think this is our practice. This is, our, this is our life, you know, this is our life. We're going to be in the world of form. You know, there's no way to be in this mind and body without being in the world of form. And so we learn through these practices how to be in relationship with the life that is not just out there, but the life that is moving through us moment after moment after moment. And as I said, this equanimity doesn't really look a particular way. And so we have to be very careful of the image that we might be setting up in the mind about how this looks. Because I see it's more, I, uh, more like an onion. If we think of ourselves as an onion, and that, that image often comes to me. and Because the, the onion has many, many layers. And all we have to do, if we find ourselves caught in reaction, it's like we just peel back one layer of the onion. We only have to peel back the outer reactivity to the reactivity. If I find myself angry about something, and then I'm angry at myself because I'm angry about what's happening, it's like just peeling off the outer reactivity to the anger rather than having to go all the way down into the anger itself so that's not happening. It's just starting where I am, starting where you are. Where is the outer reactivity? And seeing if I can bring a certain softness to that. And we've talked about this. This is what we've been talking about when we talk about pain and reacting to our pain and reacting to our feelings, reacting to other people, reacting to ourselves. It's just See if we can soften and relax that reactivity, not so that we fall all the way down into stillness, just so that we can be with our experience. 
Because when we're reacting to the reaction, we can't get there. So we can't get to what's really happening. If I'm angry at myself because I'm angry, I can't really get to what's happening in myself that I'm so angry. So I have to start at the outer layer. I want to talk a little bit about where I had my primary training in this. And this was when I uh, uh, spent many years in India. Um, many winters, I went to, started going to India for the first time in 1987, and I went for 15 winters, almost in a row, spending three or four months every winter. And the only thing, I believe, <laughs> the only thing that allowed me to survive so many days and months in India was my practice of equanimity. Because India, for those of you who have been or for those of you who have not been, has a way of just kind of taking you by the tail and then just in whipping you around in every direction so you completely lose any balance that you ever had in your whole life. And I had lived a very protected life, very kind of protected, you know, middle-class life until, you know, I was almost... 40. I'd never been to a um, undeveloped country. I'd never really been out of San Francisco. <laughs> you know, San Francisco grew up in Ohio, but you know, just hadn't really been out of my very small life. And um, I was invited to go in 1987. I had already been uh, teaching for a few years, and I was invited to go and teach in uh, Bodhgaya, the India, where the Buddha was enlightened. John had been talking about Bodhgaya. And I was invited first, and I said no, and then I had to wait. I just couldn't imagine myself in India. Then I, a, a year went by, I was invited again, and finally I said, okay, I think I'm ready now. And it, was, it, it probably has been one of the most powerful experiences of my life because of the very, very difficult challenge of being there with all the extremes of very, very beautiful and ecstatic kinds of experiences, all the way to the most horrific and most painful experiences, from one extreme to the, to the other. And my practice because I had already been practicing for some years, it, the only thing that I could draw on were the, was the phrase from the equanimity, from the, from the Brahma Vihara. Each one has a phrase. And the phrase was and is, a modified phrase is, no matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. No matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And I would be confronted with so much, so, you know, everything on every level of, of, of again, the most beautiful, you know, um, birds and flowers and smells and sights and people and smiles and heart and 
um, the, the, all the, the, the spirituality and the pujas and the temples and the ecstatic experiences and the golden Buddhas and, and all the ways that India would just open me up in a heartful way, in a mindful way, all the way to the other end of seeing the corpses and the people dying in the street and the, the burning ghats and, and all the poverty and the, and the sickness and the corruption and the poor children, the dying children, I mean, all the way from one end to the other. And all I could do was just, in my heart, continue to say, things are as they are but not as a way of, again, not detaching or cutting off or disembodying myself so that I wasn't experiencing these things, but as a way to actually see if I could stay in a, in a state of presence. Could I even stay present without drawing on all my strategies to cut off, to shut down, to not feel, to not um, experience? The extremes, I mean, uh, just even experiencing extremes of anything is too much. You know, particularly if they're all happening like if within an hour, you know, or two hours. So the practice of things are as they are so that I could stay connected, although it took me quite a long time before I was able to. Mostly what I experienced were mo- my ways of cutting off and my ways of going into reactivity and anger and self-righteous anger and and sadness and hate, hating being there, hating what was happening, hating what was going on, and having to find some way to be with myself so that I wasn't completely giving myself a hard time because especially going as a teacher and having to be a certain role model (laughs) For, you know, equanimity, so, you know. I remember the very first year I was in Bodh Gaya as uh, the three-week retreat we were having there at the Thai temple. Um, we had one um, morning of questions, the way that we have questions here, and people wrote down questions on pieces of paper, and I was doing the questions that morning. And one of the questions was, how do you deal with all the suffering that you see around you in India? Well, I had essentially been in India for about two weeks, and I had no idea how to deal with all the suffering. I mean, I was completely overwhelmed. And at the time, many, many years ago, I wasn't comfortable in myself enough to say that as a teacher, so I just kind of faked some kind of answer. (laughs) And... um, Later, when Christopher, we were talking about how it went, he said, you know, you did well with the questions, but that one about the suffering in India, you need a little bit more time in India to answer that one. And it was really just, it, was, it took years and years of practice before I could start to feel some kind of balance in myself, a balance where it wasn't, again, that deep balance, where, where I wasn't in some kind of re- reactivity to what was happening, but at least I wasn't in reaction to myself. I finally found a way of being able to accept what was happening inside of me so that that brought me 
a great deal of balance and, and less disturbance because of that level of acceptance for myself. There was a, um, a chaiwala right outside the Thai temple, uh, Ram, and uh, three or four times a day we would just go right outside the temple and have cups of tea, cups of chai, with this very poor chaiwala, which all he did, he just made chai all day, made a little bit of uh, food and um, breaded tomatoes and uh, had little um, uh, barfi, little candies and things like that. And over the years, I got to know him very well, and um, even though he didn't speak English, but his son was growing up over the years. He was quite small when I first started to go, and then by some years later, his son was about 14 and 15. And because he had spent so much time with Westerners, he had started to learn a little bit of English. And so it was possible to start to communicate with him a little bit. And I was able to hear a little bit more about his life and one time I asked him what he ate, you know, what kind of food do you eat? Because they were from a very poor family, very, very poor. And he said, well, he was able to communicate that they had um, a cup of chai tea with a chapati in the morning, the one of the little wheat, flat wheat, wheat cakes in the morning. And then for lunch they had some white rice, and it, you all, if they were lucky, they could have a little bit of vegetable with that. And then in the evening, another cup, cup of tea and chapati. And no milk. I asked about milk, and he said and it was just you know very, very expensive, and they didn't they have milk very often. And that's basically what they lived on. And I remember when these conversations started having these conversations, the, 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 the feeling would come over me it's, it, of, why? Why not me? Why him? Why his family? Why not me? How did it happen that the situation was such that I wasn't the one who was living in such poverty and such difficult, challenging situation? And I would just sit with that, and I would sit with him and, and feel my heart and feel how much I cared for him and how much I loved the family and feel into the mystery of the way things were. And, with, and so that I wouldn't fall into these states of grief and deep sorrow, I would remind myself things are as they are. No matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And as I do that, and whenever I do that, it takes me right into the mystery, right into that mysterious realm where the, I cannot answer the questions. There are no answers to the questions. Certainly this small mind, this small self cannot, cannot answer those questions. And again and again and again, in so many situations, by allowing myself to come into that acceptance of the way things were, and not an acceptance of the way things were because it was okay, an acceptance of the way things were because that's the way it was. Not because it was okay, but because it was happening. It was truth. It was real. 
So the more I came into that acceptance of the truth, I was able to sense into the unknowing realm that don't know, I don't know, I cannot understand, I will not be able to understand. It is a complete mystery. And so the equanimity, the equanimity as we move into that quiet, unmoving mind, we, the mind also can rest into the mysterious way things are so that the mind doesn't constantly look for some kind of answer, some kind of explanation, because that's what the mind does. The mind wants to understand so it can fix it can make it different. If I can only figure out how, what's wrong, where the problem is, and I can fix it. But sometimes the way things are are way, 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 way too big for this small mind. Not only to understand, but to, to even begin to fix I mean, We've tried to fix something, and actually we just start making things more problematic a lot of the time because we're not coming from a very deep place inside of ourselves. We're not connecting with deep wisdom in ourselves, which only comes as we start to drop into the stillness, into the non-reactivity, the mind that isn't grasping at how I want things to be, the way I demand things to be, or pushing away and getting angry and self-righteous about things aren't the way that I want them to be in the way that they should be. It's not even the way I want them to be. It's the way it should be. You, know, you hear yourself saying that, huh? So letting go, letting go. The phrases help me drop into my helplessness, the place where I am completely helpless. And we don't want to feel our helplessness. <laughs> No, we want to avoid that because then it means that we can't make things different. But to feel right into the helplessness, that out of controlness. Things are out of my control. And in India, what happened is that the compassion and the equanimity started to merge, started to come together. The compassion that is the love, the love that turned towards my own pain that I was feeling in the face of all these extremes, but also the, 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 the love that helped me stay connected to my pain and all the pain that surrounded me. This love, the movement of the heart, the compassion that allowed me to stay present. And the equanimity that allowed me to hold what was happening so that I didn't tumble, keep tumbling deeper and deeper and deeper into my grief and into my sorrow. Or places didn't, it held me so that I didn't tumble into my own rage and into my own anger about the way things were. That equanimity that is a kind of a net holds, holds us 
when these forces of our mind and our feelings and our emotions move within us, the equanimity gives us a ground so that it doesn't all just spiral out of control. There was a yogi who came into the interview a few days ago. He had a, a loss in his family, a death, and was going through a lot of emotion in the middle of the retreat. Very, very powerful when you hear news of that sort when you're practicing in this way. And he said something so beautiful as he was re- reporting his experience. He said, As I allow myself to feel just what is, I I feel the quivering of my heart. I feel the quivering of my heart as I allow myself to stand in the middle of don't know. As I allow myself to stand in the middle of the mystery of the way things are. So beautiful because that's a real expression of the equanimity and the compassion, the compassion, the the heart just quivering with, with the truth, the truth of this very painful, challenging life in which we live. And it's not always painful, fortunately. You know, it's not always challenging Fortunately, it also has the whole other side of the, of the beauty, the joy, the exquisiteness. But even those start to come together as we meet the present more and more and we're able, we have more and more capacity to open to the present. It's all there. It's all there. And we're not as we're not as, 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 as guarded because we start to touch into the qualities of our own being, of our own heart, that, that gives us the confidence that we can meet life. And again, not just the life out there, but also the life that's flowing inside, the powerful, strong forces of the inner life as well. How, how, how do we... How does the heart hold all of this? You know, when we really open, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot happening. You know, one woman today was talking about just walking underneath the veranda and the way that the water is falling down the pipes, it's just like, you know, like, like just a million miles a minute of the little sound. And she said it sounded like when she went to hear some Japanese drummers, 30 Japanese drummers drumming all at once. She said the rain coming down was just like the Japanese drums. And she was able to be fully present for that exquisiteness of just the sound of the rain in in the drain pipe. How we miss these things. When the, when the heart is closed, when the body-mind is closed. But as we open, we, we, it's like, oh, 
how do, how do we open to all of this? How does the heart hold it all? And I'm always reminded of Ajahn Sumedho's me- metaphor of, of this, uh, I think I mentioned it before when I was doing, talking about concentration, of the standing under the waterfall, like life is standing under the waterfall. And sometimes our heart can open enough, there's enough capacity that we feel, you know, the waterfall to a certain extent. And it may not be the big waterfall, you know, the, you know, the complete open, you know, when, we're, when we have every aspect of ourselves available. But, but even that, the capacity to open and just be impacted by life, this life, this life that's happening right in this moment, right now, the way that we're being impacted right in this moment in any way that that's happening which is unique for each person. The woman who was talking about the Japanese drums also um, shared something very beautiful with me in the interview. She didn't know I was going to be talking about equanimity. I hadn't told her that, but she started her interview saying, that she had a wonderful insight in the, in the, in, in the morning sit for, around equanimity. So I asked her after she told me, I said, oh, may I please share this tonight because it's so beautiful. She told me that um, while she was sitting, she uh, remembered that um, in German, the German word for equanimity literally means equal courage, equal courage. The word in German, and I don't speak German, <laughs> but I'm going to try it, is Glichmut. I know there's a few German people here, um, but it's something like that, Glichmut. And it me- Glich means equal, and Mut means courage. And what she sensed, what she really felt, was that equal courage means that you have equal courage to everything that appears in every moment. And then you have the courage to open to each thing equally, without distinction, without discrimination. And you can, you can open and bow down to each thing as it comes equally with a courageous heart. And that that's the, the word in German actually implies that. It, 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 it uh, literally means that. And I thought, how beautiful that in these languages, these other languages, that there are words that, that point directly to what it is that we're working with, that we're dealing with. And when I asked her how that actually feels when she felt into it, when she sensed into it, she's, she said, yes, she said, as I, when I feel into that equal courage. She said it is a, there's a quality of openness, the openness and the, the receptivity that allows all things to move and to flow and to express themselves. And yet in that openness, there's also a firmness, a steadiness, a, a, a kind of strength 
that is holding that openness so that so there isn't the falling out into or away from just the firm open receptivity to all things as they come and go this is an expression of our buddha nature open receptive allowing yet strong firm settled grounded both of these qualities manifesting in that equanimity bowing down to each thing just this just this Our practice supports this awakening to equanimity through our insight. Through our insight into anicca, into impermanence, the insight that everything is changing, is fleeting, as Anna was speaking about this morning, everything fleeting in every moment, changing, shifting, trans- in transition, every instant an insight into dukkha when we think of dukkha as the unreliability that we we can't hold on to anything it's unsatisfactory all things are unsatisfactory we try to hold on but we can't hold on because everything's changing everything's out of control on one level and the insight into that unreliability that there's no point of leaning away of running away from the pain or the suffering because it's more it just perpetuates more of the same so we we realize we need to lean into to move into the dukkha to make contact with the truth of the way things are open to it allow it because it's changing, moving, shifting, flowing. And insight into anatta, into not-self, understanding that there is nothing that is isolated, that stands by itself, that is fixed in any way, but that everything is connected, interrelated, codependent, moving, shifting, changing, affecting everything else in a great flow, in a great freedom, that we are and as we sense more into the way things are that grasping starts to just we can't go out in the same way and Gil was mentioning this you can't we know better (laughs) just know better it's like what are we holding on to this ephemeral, kind of fleeting, empty nature. What are we rejecting? What are we feeling aversive towards? As we, we, we deepen into our understanding, into our uh, insight, into the way things are. We drop. We drop into the stillness. And again, maybe it's not 
the big stillness. But we start where we are. And if I were to have, if that question came to me again, you know, how do you deal with all the suffering? And we don't have to be in India. We know that for sure. We don't have to look very far to see all those same factors manifesting of poverty and sickness and death and pain and separation. and It's all right here. The way I would answer it is I would say, start where you are. Just start where you are. Start with your own suffering, with your own pain. Look at your own capacity to let go, to come into a place of allowing and accepting of what is right in your own experience right now. And that's the doorway. That's the doorway to freedom. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you.